Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Elixir Mix. Really quickly, if you've been listening to this and you're wondering a little bit of where things are, I did record a quick episode and talked a little bit about that. So go check that out. But we are ramping up with a new panel. We have Alan Wyma. Alan, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah. So, of course, I'm Alan. I'm originally from the southwest side of Chicago, now living in Hong Kong, working with Elixir for about, wow, I don't know, three, four years, something like that. And uh, really excited to really be more into the community now with uh, Elixir Mix. Awesome. Well, we also have Eric. Oh, man. I, I see these names and I'm always like, I am going to kill this. So I apologize in advance, Eric. But uh, let's see how we do. Bol- Bolakowski. Why don't you correct my yeah pronunciation and then tell us a little about yourself. Uh, so I'm Eric Bolakowski. If you would want the um, Norwegian pronunciation where I'm from. Oh, there you go. Yeah. In English, we would just say Eric Bolakowski, which is perfectly fine. Yeah, I'm not Polish. I'm Norwegian French with a dash of Iranian and Peruvian as well. I have a crazy family background, uh, but I won't bore you with that because it would take, you know, at least 10 minutes to <laughs> go through. I'm a full stack developer, been doing coding for, you know, give or take 15 years. Um, my main source of living is basically, you know, freelancing JavaScript, but I've done, you know, sort of other languages such as Java, um, PHP, so I did ActionScript many, many years ago, done a bit of Objective-C as well. And I recently started, started getting into Elixir, and uh, so far I'm loving what I see, especially the functional aspects. I'm very interested in you know, learning more uh, through all the interesting conversations we're going to have in the Elixir Mixed podcast. And uh, yeah, that's Eric in a nutshell. Awesome. And for, for those of you who aren't familiar with me, just real quick, I'm Charles Maxwood. Everybody calls me Chuck, so you can call me Chuck if you email me or whatever. And uh, I started this podcast, what, like three, four years ago? pulled it together with uh, Mark Erickson and a few other folks. Mark's a local guy. Josh Adams was another guy that I had had contact with through the Ruby community. And yeah, I had kind of let this show run on its own and let those guys run the show. And they kind of wanted to take things in a different direction. And so they kind of went off and did their own thing. And I'm not sure exactly where that all landed, but when it does, and when I'm sure I'll let you all know, because I'm I just don't see all any of this as, as competition, right? If there's great stuff out there, you all ought to know about it. But yeah, I'm I'm the perpetual dabbler on the call, right? And so I show up on the JavaScript show. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be on the React show. On Thursday, I'll be on the Ruby show. On Friday, I'll be on <laughs> the machine learning show. So yeah, I'm, I'm playing with all of it. But yeah, Elixir is one of those things that is just it's really interesting. It's a different way of thinking about things and I really enjoy playing with it. And so you can find all that. I'm also going to shout out real quick if you are interested in kind of taking your career from senior to whatever's next is kind of what I'm calling it uh, to become a dev hero. You can go check that out. That's at devchat.tv slash hero. And you'll just find a form there. You can answer a handful of questions. That just gives me an idea of how I can best help you and whether or not it's a good fit. And I'm helping a few folks out there in the community basically do that get to the next level you know whether it's speaking or upping their freelance game or all kinds of things like that when i went freelance i was still only a few years into my development career 
My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. All right, Julian, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, so I'm Julian. I've been working as a software engineer for the past seven years now and working with Elixir for about five years, I want to say. And yeah, I'm currently working at Axios Media. Yeah, I think that's that's it for me. Nice. Now, I ran across your stuff and invited you to the show because I was... Uh, on the Elixir, is it Elixir status email list? And I saw one of your blog posts about currying and I was, you know, we do currying in other languages that I work in, Ruby and JavaScript. And I was like, currying and Elixir, that's kind of cool. And then I went and looked at the blog post and I'm like, this isn't currying like I think of currying. But as I dove into it, I'm like, this is really fascinating, not just from the standpoint of, oh, you can do this with functional programming, but as kind of a mental exercise to learn what languages are capable of and how to think about problems in functional programming. And so I'm, I'm really curious, you want to just walk us through the problem real quick um, and, and how you came up with the blog posts that you wrote and then kind of talk us through what you learned there. Yeah, so I learned about Kering while working with Haskell and I wanted to see if it was something that would be possible in Elixir. And thanks to like meta programming capabilities, I thought mm -hmm. it would probably do, be doable. Just wasn't sure if it would be. That's how it started. That, yeah, just to see if it's something that you could do in Elixir and, and then started, started on implementing it. And then realized that it was kind of a mess, honestly, like carrying without the syntax support is not something you'd probably want to use on your at work or something like that but yeah and yeah that's how it started the purpose when you started doing the the checking into currying though i was kind of curious did you actually take a look at any of the hex packages that talk about currying or or kind no, of currying to elixir actually i didn't know there were any currying packages on x i'm kind of surprised i looked at it earlier today and saw that there were actually uh, quite a few that kind of popular and, and I would be curious to see how people are using them because like from my experience it doesn't seem like again like without the syntax support it's kind of not as nice as you would want it to be I guess especially when we have like partial application in Elixir I think that's probably what I would use instead. Do you think that Elixir um, just programs can become a bit more elegant and usable by having carrying? I mean if it was part of the base syntax, I guess it it might be, but given like Erlang and Elixir both both put an emphasis on having like like each function is different based on their arity, it wouldn't really work if you had every function being like 
taking only one parameter, it, it just wouldn't work, I guess. So I don't see how Elixir could support that. Now, can we back up for just a second and explain what we're talking about when we're talking about currying in this case? Yeah, so like currying in like functional programming languages is uh, basically instead of having a function that takes n args, it's going to take exactly one arg and return a function that takes another argument and you basically chain unary functions instead uh -huh. of applying like four parameters to a function you're actually applying a single parameter and returning a function that takes three parameters and so could you right. give a simple, uh, example for our listeners so let's say like you have the map function which would take two parameters because you have function you want to apply to your list and the list and you could for example do map of any function you want and that would return a new function that you would apply to a list and instead of having like instead of applying map to both the function and the list you would technically what the language would do is just applying the function to the to the sorry applying map to the function first and return a new function that you can apply to the list if that makes any sense. Right. So essentially what you do is you create a map function or map this function function. Yeah. Right. And then from there, then it only takes one parameter. And so then you can pass it to the list or you can pass the members of the list. And that way you can curry it and, you know, you can pass each individual member or you can pass the entire list, like we said. And that way it only takes one and you can continue to hand it more stuff if you wish. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, Eric, I think I jumped in over the top of you. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, you, you dove into the, the, kind of the, the line of thinking that I was going to uh, go forward with. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah this, is a, this is a concept that I've been exploring over in, in JavaScript, and I really like the idea of basically having this idea of actually partially applying a function. I mean, this is, to me, a much more <laughs> straightforward way of actually saying what it is, partial application. Carrying is a bit more of like an obscure name to me, but I really like the idea of, for instance, yeah, as you explained, Julian, very well, of taking a, of, of making a function a bit more specific. If it takes two or three arguments, you can basically prepare it to say that this map function will always do this kind of mapping. And afterwards, you have a, a function that is, you know, a first class citizen, at least in, in JavaScript, as well as in, um, in Elixir, and then you can afterwards apply it to a specific operation. This is very elegant. Yeah, I think in one of your blog posts, Julian, you actually said that this is not partial application. Well, it's, yeah, it's different from a partial application in the sense that, like, you could partially apply a function by, say, passing two arguments and then you would have one left, but with carrying it's always one argument. Okay. Like, you can't pass more than one argument to a function, technically. So is it a special case then of partial application? I don't think it's a special case. Uh, well, yeah, I guess you could say that. But I think currying is actually what's used in like lambda calculus. So it came before partial application. I guess you could say that currying is basically a bit more, just a more specific case of, of partial application, at least from how I understand it. Partial application means that you can get a function that takes as many arguments as you want, but whereas with currying, it's always one argument. So one other blog post yeah, that I, I can, wanted to... Oh, go ahead, Alan. No, I was just thinking, like, I used to actually use partial application quite a lot in Python because they have this package called Funk Tools, and there's a 
function called partial, and, and I always get confused between partial application versus currying. And it seems, yeah, they're, they're quite different, but at a higher level, I would say they're pretty similar, right? I think with Elixir, you can probably do more partial application than you can with currying, as, as I think you're, you've kind of found out, right? Because there's no real way to do currying in Elixir, or am I, am I wrong? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, you can do like partial application thanks to like the in-person or like, the capture operator, but there's no way to do currying. Like if you want to do currying, you have, actually have to define a function as a chain of anonymous function that only takes like each take one argument. But yeah, there's no support for currying in the language. You actually often use currying in uh, your actual you know day job. Uh, coding. I mean, when well, that I mean, of course, you say that you cannot actually Elixir doesn't support carrying, but do you do you define this explicit chain of functions as we see in, in this um, cursed carried Elixir blog post, where you like you literally have a chain of functions and you define the carry kind of the carrying yourself? No, I I've never done that. I don't think it would actually be a good idea to do that. Like, it doesn't it doesn't look good. It's not very readable. I like. Yeah, I'm not sure about the performance implication of that, but I don't think that would be great too. So I would avoid that at all costs, honestly. <laughs> well, that's actually very, very interesting. So perhaps, uh, so basically, all of the all of the currying experiments that you've been doing at Elixir is more kind of like intellectual curiosity and more for fun and to learn Elixir than anything else, right? Yeah, it's more of like trying to push the see I push the, the elixir syntax to its limits I guess and see what is possible with it but yeah I, I, I don't think I would ever want to use that in actual like production code cool can you recommend this approach of you know learning a language by exploring niches and different approaches to other people by breaking it <laughs> yes <laughs> very well said Chuck yeah, I mean, that's how I've been learning programming, like trying to experiment with like the the syntax of a language. And like, especially when you have meta programming capabilities, like you would have in Lisp. I think it's really a great way to learn about the language and see exact, try to understand how it works behind the scenes without actually to having to look at the compiler or anything. You still learn a lot of things from doing that. Yeah, I like the idea of what would I never ever do with this language, right? Or what wouldn't make sense? Or what do I wish was here and why isn't it here, right? And so then you go and try and build it and then you're like, oh, oh I get it, I get it, right? And and yeah, you know, then you're giving us the explanation of, yeah, it, it just doesn't quite fit with the way Erlang and Elixir work, work right? And, and you can kind of backfill that hole and and I just love kind of that exploratory learning that is a little bit different from, you know, going out of a book like the one that Eric held up and showed us, which was Programming Elixir by Dave Thomas, or working through a course on Udemy or something like that. It's actually really interesting. I like this this idea of, you know, trying to learn by doing the stuff that you shouldn't do. There's one quite popular website that does come to mind called the dailywtf.com. And find the link in our show notes. And uh, this is basically, it's, I think it has a tagline, just from memory, 
curious perversions in the information technology and it's basically a bunch of examples of how you should not code and uh yeah this goes something somewhere some like reading that 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 blog actually helps me to also understand you know what you can do with certain languages but also gives a good example of what you should definitely not do actually i was kind of curious uh julian where did you kind of get started with programming? Because I did take a look at your GitHub and I saw a lot of Haskell. And so, and you obviously wrote this article about Korean, so I can see your background is really a lot in uh, Haskell. And then you mentioned Lisp, so I feel like it's very, very functional. So like, you know, I do you always stay in the functional land or, or where did you kind of start off? And also like, what brought you to Elixir? Because to me, if you're a very functional person, Lisp and Haskell is kind of like the sweet spot, but, Elixir, Erlang, these languages are kind of more like a, a practical use of functional languages in my in my thinking, because I used to hear that people from the Haskell community would actually look at Erlang because it's kind of like one of the more popular functional languages, actually very practical and very much in use, you know, especially in the telecom industry. Yeah, so I actually started programming with Python and C, so not really anything functional, but then, I don't know, I think maybe... Yeah, six or seven years ago, started looking into Haskell, and that's what uh, got me started in, with like functional programming languages. And I think I got drawn to Elixir because of, like I said, like its meta programming capabilities, and also having Erlang and the OTP is just very fun. Like not worrying about failures, not worrying about any, all the things you usually have to worry about in most languages. So yeah, I think I just and re enjoy it's a fun language to use. That's the main thing for me. Since you highlight metaprogramming as one of the, the well highlights of, of Elixir, can you define what metaprogramming actually is and uh, how it's used in Elixir, perhaps with, uh, with an example? I'm not sure I'd be able to find an example on the spot, but uh, the fact that you can like, that you have macros is and like being able to basically define a domain-specific language in the language without, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd be able to explain that, honestly. <laughs> no, it's fine, but I'll make a note that we should talk about it in another episode. Okay, yeah. But the fact that you can play with the AST of the language is what makes it fun for me. I guess it's also possible to, to go wild a bit. I mean, it sounds like a bit <laughs> functionality that you can also take very far. <laughs> You gotta make your own uh, Julia Ixir <laughs> based on Elixir, I guess. Yeah, one yeah, one thing. Programming. I was just gonna say I worked a little bit meta programming in uh, Ruby. It was kind of a lot of fun, but that's also the danger of Ruby, right? It's kind of like a, a sword with no handle, so you can really easily hurt yourself if you go too far deep. So I, I remember I did some stuff with parsing XML, and uh, yeah, I, I thought I was very clever, but then. Many years later, I thought about what I did, and I was like, wow, this is not very... <laughs> if you don't know what it's all doing, then you'll be very lost. You know, Most people don't really get into metaprogramming. But I think the macros and all that in, in Ruby is kind of... Or sorry, in, uh, in Elixir is actually kind of more straightforward. Because I think they're more on compile time rather than actual runtime. If you look at something like Ruby, where you can kind of use code to start generating code. Uh, Julian, I think you have more experience in than me in this, but I think that's my interpretation of metaprogramming within uh, Elixir. Yeah, so like, I mean, you could try to compile the AST, sorry, the AST at 
runtime, but like dev macro is run at compile time. And yeah, I feel like it's just, it feels sane, I guess, uh, writing macros in Elixir. And I think like the biggest library, Elixir libraries like Phoenix, they do a good job of not overusing those. I think they set a good example for what you should and shouldn't do with macros. Uh, do you follow the very first rule of macros? Which is don't write macros. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the unofficial or official uh, very first rule of macros is don't don't write them. And uh, I forgot what the second and third one is. I believe there's three, right? But the first one is the one that I think you already broke. But usually yeah. it's it's hopefully hopefully it's for a good reason, right? But yeah, I also have the metaprogramming book and I just haven't cracked it open yet. So I've been lucky that most of the work I do is don't need to bring in any kind of custom mm -hmm. syntax. You always kind of worry about custom syntax, new people coming in and, you know, you have to catch people up on what are these things, right? So that's, that's always a difficult part. Have you ever done anything that you thought was very clever when you were working with AST and then after kind of walking away and coming back and you feel like, hmm, Maybe I should revisit this. I don't think I ever used, I, I haven't used much micros at work, honestly. So I, I don't think I ever did that. But yeah, on personal projects, I definitely overused micros and felt clever at the time, but then was unable to understand what I did day before. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was following your art. I was just going to say, I'm sorry, cutting you off, Chuck. Uh, no, so I was good. just going to say, I was, I was following your uh, article about, pipes and so i do like pipes but then i think i got to the first i love that two one or three blocks yeah the first two or three blocks i was okay and then after that i just kind of gave up and said jesus i don't know if i can keep read this this is this is getting horrible i just kind of trusted you after that that the syntax is correct but i hope you don't write code like that at work but if you yeah. do i guess oh. you have what they call mdd yeah, no, I, I felt the same writing it. Like, uh, I, I wasn't sure if I should stop or, or keep going, but I guess maybe I should have stopped earlier. <laughs> yeah, I think I said something like, my brain, oh, my brain. But yeah, it, it was it was definitely interesting there just to, to dive in <laughs> looking at it. And it's like, we're going to make it look less like Ruby. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with Ruby. But also just looking at it and going, yeah, you know, we anything can be taken too far. And, you know, to the point on metaprogramming and macros, you know, there are a lot of ways to get a hole. You know, you can get a shovel, you can get a backhoe, you can get dynamite, right? And, and they're all different ways of getting a hole. So it depends on what kind of hole you need. It depends on what specific use case it's for, right? A couple of weeks ago, we were driving through Southern Utah and we were driving down a pretty new highway because it's growing like crazy down there. They're building new homes and stuff like that. And we drove through this place where they had cut a, a path through a hill, you know, so that they could get a nice, even smooth grade down into the valley. You know, otherwise, you know, it follow the hill and then it just drop right off, right? And it just doesn't make sense, right? And we want a good experience for maintenance. We want a good experience for our users. And so we do that kind of thing sometimes in our code, right? Where we smooth things out so that it's, it's nice to use. And when you drive through that cut, there are these lines where you can see where they drilled into the hill, right? And they're, you know, they're probably a foot across. A foot is what? A third of a meter. And so, you know, you can see where they drilled down there. 
And yeah, the way they do that is they drill down there and then they put explosives and they put uh, explosives that blow up in a certain way that open that hill up so then they can come in and dig all that dirt out. But it's pretty extreme if you just want to put a sprinkler system into your front yard, right, where you're just going to lay some pipe in. And so that's the way I think about the macros and the, the metaprogramming or any other tool, really, right? You know, overusing the pipes or, you know, calling into kernel like you did, right? To me, it's like, okay, well, let's go blow this sucker up because we can. Or maybe we just come in and do what makes sense because at the end of the day, and I recorded another episode of Clean Coders podcast this morning. We were talking about the code's cognitive load. And one of the things we talked about is how do other Elixir programmers or other programmers in general expect to see the code idiomatically so that they understand it, right? And so they don't have to mentally parse through and go, Colonel, what? Why are there so many pipes here? And what are the, what are these ones doing, right? Those ones, I kind of get what they're there for. And so it's it's all back to the same idea where it's it's not just, hey, you know, we don't want it to look like Ruby, but at the end of the day, it's, hey, I want somebody to be able to come and look at this and easily explain to somebody else who doesn't know Elixir what it does because they can read it fluently and understand what they're looking at. Or you can break my brain. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think writing this felt like an exercise in, like for me, realizing that you really shouldn't be doing that. Like, um, I think it's actually nice to see that you can do it and understand mm-hmm. that you can do it, but no, even explore your own limits. Like, because at some point, you even you, when you write this, you can't really understand it like you have to pass it and it takes a while so realizing that that being clever is not the right way to work write code sometimes hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium it actually reminds me Isn't of the, like the famous quote from Linus Torvalds, talk is cheap, show me the code. And you really showed us, you know, by, with code, how crazy you can go down the rabbit's nest and use crazy feature, features of Elixir. What I really, really enjoyed with your blog articles actually was like, you, that you take it one step at a time. So you don't go from, you know, simple code to uber complex code right away. You don't do that enormous leap, but you have, you know, three, four, five intermediate steps where you actually gradually make things more complex and then you go completely crazy at the end. So I think like I would personally end up somewhere in the middle in terms of, you know, the style that I would like to use. So really good job there. I was just going to say that you guys reminded me of when people sometimes show me some interesting creations from either Japan or even US and say, okay, you know, we mixed, I don't know, we mixed, like like over here, right? There's a Pizza Hut over here. It's kind of like a five-star restaurant, which is a little bit weird if I think about Pizza Hut back where I am. And they had these very crazy uh, creations where they put corn, ranch dressing, and other weird stuff on a pizza. And I just think to myself, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's what you kind of reminded me of. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. But it's always fun to kind of experiment and see what, what comes out of it. It's, it's funny you mentioned corn on pizza because in Italy... Uh, pizza a la americana is it has corn on it like american style pizza which i always thought was funny so yeah they're like you're american 
do you have corn on your pizza? And I'm just like, no, <laughs> it's not a thing in, in America. But yeah. I heard the way to really punish Italian people is to start mentioning putting pineapple on pizza and then they just get really upset. So that's what I see a lot of people out here doing to local Italian people is just start showing them pictures of pizza with uh, pineapple on it. Yeah. Or we'd talk about putting crazy stuff into pasta. That was the other way to get them because they, they, they'd be like, you can't put that in pasta. And we try it and no, it's really good. I actually lived right next door to a very good Italian restaurant. And uh, I think uh, so we'll go and bring this up with them to like just tease them. <laughs> Can you make me a Hawaiian pizza? Yeah, there you go. Next week, Eric will be 10, town, 10 pounds heavy, heavier because of the Italian <laughs> restaurant. I'll show up and I'll, I'll, I'll actually show you the end result. Like, you know, this is what yeah. happens. Hawaiian pizza with pineapple. They punish yeah. you. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into the abstract syntax trees and megaparsec here for a minute. So do you want to tell us a little about what you did here, Julian? Yeah. So I think a colleague started this at my previous job. He wanted to write a parser for Elixir in Rust. And I thought it would be a fun idea to like write another parser in Ascode and just compare our implementations. And yeah, that's how it started. And I think I wasn't expecting the Elixir syntax to be as complex because when you look at it, when you look at it, it seems simple. And that's actually what I like about the language. It's like it looks simple, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, things that you like when you're writing a parser, you actually realize that yeah, there are a lot of things that you don't have to think about when you're writing Elixir. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, actually, you point out something that I thought was very weird. And I think somebody was mentioning this on the Elixir Slack channel very recently, which is uh, using the access style brackets, right, to grab something from a deep nested uh, map. And you just, if you add a bunch of those to keys that don't even exist, you can still get nil, right? But you showed over here that actually gets translated as access.get, right? So yeah. I find that to be very like if you try to explain this to somebody who's new to the language right it's even to me i'm getting a little bit confused about why is it that if i use access.get i believe it'll, it'll actually fail right if you put a nil into the first parameter it'll fail but this one seems to work fine so actually i think access.get wouldn't fail and that's i think that's get in is implemented where you can like get in uh like get value in a nested map and provide a default value when the key isn't found. And here, basically, when you, when you do that map, the default value is a map. So when you get when the key doesn't exist, you use the map as a default values, uh, value and can get like you know at the nested level, I guess. I, I'm not sure if that was very clear, but yeah, basically the access syntax is just when you quote when you do like quote. Um, the access syntax, you, you'll see that it's just doing access.get oh, something. That sounds a bit familiar, actually, to the optional chaining operator that was introduced in JavaScript uh, not too long ago, uh, where you can essentially have a object that you, and then you, you, you write uh, object dot another property of the object dot another property of that object dot function name. By inserting question mark dot, you can actually um, make sure that it's short circuited and the expression just allows you to know at the end of the day. Is there anything uh, similar in Elixir? Well, yeah, I think that's 
basically the same thing, but for maps and keywords list. No, actually just maps. But in Elixir, like it's not clear that this is what's going to happen. Like the question marks, the question mark makes it obvious that you and that there's something different, but in Elixir, like the access syntax, I think a lot of people are not expecting this to happen, except like a key error or something when they do that. So is this like a common trap that you think junior developers learning Elixir go into that can be confusing to them? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, once you know it, like it's easy to remember that, but the first time it can definitely be surprising, I guess. Are there other like interesting things that you discovered in your um, experiments with Megaparsec that you would like to, to share with us? I think, again, like with the access syntax, the fact that you can use keywords list combined with the access syntax, because like uh, keywords list also use brackets. And so if you pass, like, I'm, I'm not sure why you would want to do that, but you can use keywords list as keys in maps. And if you're trying to access a value that's where the key is a keywords list in a map using the access syntax, you probably shouldn't do that because it's it's not great. It's to understand what's going on behind the scenes. But yeah, just don't use keywords list as keys in maps or don't use the access syntax to access keywords list in maps, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that. But I think once again, it's actually useful to get these examples of anti-patterns, but you still managed to, by showing us this code and explaining how it works, actually take us on a, basically a safari about the different features of Elixir. I think it's a great illustration that uh, helps us to discover different things about the language. So this is very useful. I'm actually learning a lot just by talking to you now. So thanks a lot for that. What I think is the most interesting and something I see, uh, well, I, I teach uh, beginners coding, usually with JavaScript, Python, mostly JavaScript. And I tend to write my code a little bit, little bit spaced out. So when you look for examples online, it looks pretty much the same. But then when I see people writing code, they, they sometimes mix, you know, they don't add in spaces here and there. And sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't matter. And why, why I bring this up is that I look at your access syntax section of that article and you talk about, okay, this is okay, but this is not okay. And it seems difficult for people to figure out what could be okay, what could not be okay. And just looking at one piece, right? You have uh, data, space, bracket, colon, key, right? How I imagine so many people would actually write that and think it's okay. And then but what you see over here is that it actually comes up being data, passing in a list with and add them as a, as a value, right? Instead of actually using the access syntax. Like, you know, writing a parser for this kind of stuff seems both difficult, no? Yeah, I think that's mostly due to the fact that Elixir allows you to not use parents when you're coding a function. And that makes everything difficult in the parser. Just not knowing, yeah, just like you said, like the fact that a space can actually be a function application and you don't know that until like you have reached like the end of the line. That's, it's easier for, I think it's easier for a developer to understand that for the parser to understand actually, because when you read it, it might seem obvious, but when you're trying to pass it, it, it really isn't. I'm almost wondering if you actually ran the formatter first and then took that code and parsed that, that would almost be better because if I remember correctly, 
when you run the formatter from Mix, it'll actually add parentheses here and there. I, I may be wrong. So that may actually help to solve some issues like this. Yeah, it probably would. I haven't done that. I thought about it, but then for some reason decided not to. But yeah, I think it would make some things easier. But since you can specify which function shouldn't be parenthesized by the formatter, then it wouldn't solve every issue, I guess. How about using the dot syntax too, right? Because if you have like a deeply nested struct with more structs inside, that could also be interesting too, right? Because isn't it, it's not really using the access method underneath, right? It's using, well, what is it actually using? Do you know? I'm not sure. So like the dot operator is, like there's a dot operator in Elixir and this is what it's using, but I'm not sure what it does exactly. Yeah, I'm, a, yeah, I'm really not sure about that. Cool. Well, I'm, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that we want to pounce on here before we jump on our picks? Do you have any uh, future subjects that you would like to explore in your blog? I'm not sure yet. I've been, last weekend, I was trying to define modules at compile time, at runtime, and but I didn't get anywhere with that. But I might try to work on that again and see how it goes. Yeah. Nice. I'll keep an eye out on your blog. Yeah, definitely. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right, let's do us some picks. I guess I'm the veteran here, so I'll go first. I usually make somebody else go first, but I'll do it this time. So one of my wife and my favorite things to do is play board games. And given that this is kind of geek-ish community, uh, one of the things that we do that we enjoy is we play Marvel Legendary. And this is a game put out by, oh, what's the name? It's a, a card, like a trading cards company. And anyway, we, we really, really enjoy the game. Some of the expansions, you actually have to wait until they print a new round of them, right? And so like right now, I think the Civil War expansion is worth like 200 bucks. But the flip side of that is, is that one of the other ones, Secret Wars 1, I think, I got lucky and went to their website and actually was able to get one for like 36 bucks, which is what the the printed price on the box is, even though they were like 180 bucks on Amazon because I just happened to go on their website when they had a batch of them in and in stock, right? And so if you time it right, you can get the expansions, even though they're hard to come by because they don't print enough of them. So anyway, we've been really enjoying that. I've actually been working on a React Native app that spins up the the different card decks, right? So you can say, I want cards from these expansions and then it'll actually randomly select the heroes and the villains and all that. So you can play the game because otherwise what you have to do is you have to like fan out a bazillion cards and 
pick your villains from it. And that kind of, that's no fun. So anyway, so that's, that's been a lot of fun. I've really been enjoying uh, Legendary and that's been terrific. Another pick that I have as far as being able to get, just get work done in general is Trello. And I've actually been using it for a number of things. Uh, one of the things that I've been using it for is just to keep track of uh, the production on the podcasts. So, you know, you just move it through the swim lanes kind of thing. You know, basically Kanban style programmers pretty used to that. Another thing that I use it for is I use it to keep track of different kinds of resources that we use for sources for the different podcasts. And for this show, the previous hosts had been mostly doing the invites for guests. And so I am fleshing that out now for Elixir Mix. So one thing that you all can do to help me is actually, if you want to just tweet at me, my Twitter handle is at CMAXW. Just let me know what your favorite resources for Elixir. It could be a blog, it could be a podcast, it could be a newsletter, it could be a subreddit, it could be a conference. I mean, anything, you know, just let me know, you know, and just, you know, at CMAXW and then, you know, my favorite Elixir conference, podcast, blog, whatever, is this, right? And that would really help us out because what happens is, is then I just follow those and I go check through them periodically and see which ones I like. And then I invite people. And I started with the Elixir newsletter because they already curate some stuff. But what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to kind of have a wider breadth of options for that. And then I'd also eventually like to be able to put together some kind of resource kind of like Elixir status, but that comes out more than or Elixir Weekly, I think is the newsletter. Elixir status is the kind of the the resource where you can share the the what do you call it like the links and stuff but i'd like to put something out that comes out more than once a week and let people know what the news is you know maybe three or four times a week and so that would also help me with that but yeah those are kind of things that i'm thinking about and it would really help us because then if we're pulling ideas from your favorite resources then we can go a little deeper on some of these topics like we did here with julian and his awesome blog post so Anyway, those are my picks. Uh, you should also be able to go to recommend.devchat.tv and actually just recommend topics. So those are my picks. Eric, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm actually going to go right ahead and pick the book that I showed you earlier, which is just my lovely programming elixir by Dave Thomas. Thomas. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm like, a, you know, I've been doing programming for quite a while, but I'm brand new to elixir and uh, Reading this and doing the various exercises and just following along his line of thinking is really, really useful. I actually went on the Elixir Lang website when I started like my project of learning Elixir, and that was the one that was right out recommended first up. So I've been really enjoying that so far. So I can really recommend it to anyone else who is uh, wanting to learn Elixir. I'm also, uh, as a second pick, on a bit of like a learning sabbatical these days. I'm actually taking three to four hours every morning to just, you know, learn by reading or by doing some kind of side project that I'm doing a lot of these days, besides my actual, like, you know, freelancing day job. So it's been very really useful to carve out that time to learn stuff. And the other pick that I'm going to mention is Computer Science Distilled, Learn the Art of Solving Computational Problems by Vladston Ferreira Filho, probably also butchering his name beautiful book that is incredibly concise and goes into various topics such as what are combinations, what are permutations, talks about, you know, the really basic math that you have to, to know for computing, 
talks about flowcharts, talks about UML, complexity uh, strategy, data, algorithms, databases, computers, like a lot of very basic computer science that is very, very useful for everybody who's doing coding to know, but especially for you know people that have been doing computing for a, a while and programming, it's really useful to go back to basics and read it in such a short and a terse, but also very concise and nicely written manner. So that's, those are my picks. Alan. Yeah, Alan, let's do it. All right. So, sorry, I'm still waking up. Still early over here. So my picks are a Pragmatic Studio in general, but two particular courses is there's the uh, Live View course. That one's been really fantastic and really upping my game in uh, using Phoenix Live View and helped me to understand a lot more. Also with really getting into the pedal stack. So that's Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine, LiveView, if I said that correctly. So that's really great. Along with the Absinthe course, I actually recently went back to Absinthe. Uh, there's a, a GraphQL course to have. That one's been really useful. I just found out I didn't actually finish it. And so I had to go through and finish it from a couple of years ago. And it was still, still very beneficial for me now. The other one I have is... There's a ElixirConf 2018 Docker and OTP Friends or Foes by Daniel Azuma. That was extremely useful. Uh, one of the cool things about Elixir and, uh, of course, uh, from Erlang is that, you know, you can actually keep things running all the time and you can actually pass processes back and forth. And uh, they actually show how you can do that. So you can say, okay, I have two nodes running. I actually had a live game running at the time. People in the audience were playing. And uh, he actually took down one of the servers and he transferred the processes from one server to the other server. So from one node to another node. And there was a very slight difference you could feel, but then uh, you could see that the code is actually live upgraded on both nodes eventually. Uh, I won't go into specifics. I think you should go ahead and check it out. And then also check out, he has a GitHub, GitHub uh, project with all the code there so you can see how it all works. So that's something that I think is really useful. Nice. Does Mike Clark teach those uh, Phoenix courses? I believe he taught a Elixir one, which was pretty good. Uh, uh -huh. I got into that one some time ago. So that was really useful, kind of building okay. a, a basic HTTP server from the beginning. So that was extremely helpful. A lot of people got that too. So that one's also really great. Yeah, Mike's a terrific guy. I've known him for a long time. Started out with uh, Ruby and Rails courses. And uh, yeah, I know he got into some of the Elixir stuff, but I, I wasn't sure if he had done like the live view courses and stuff. So get him on, I think. That would be good it's got a lot of knowledge in elixir yeah we should all right well julian do you have some picks some things you want to shout out about on the show yeah i have one pick it's a book it's the little typer it's about uh, static typing and dependent types so if you're interested in like idris and haskell and any statically typed uh, language like this is a really good introduction to types in general cool i'll have to check it out all right. And if people want to find you online, I'm assuming you're on GitHub and probably Twitter. Are there other places to find you? And what are your handles on those two platforms? Yeah, only GitHub and Twitter. And my handle is E-V-U-E-Z. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I pronounce it F-S, but it's French. So I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's E-V-U-E-Z. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, if you can put the links to that in the chat, we will get it into the show notes. And yeah. Thanks for coming, Julian. This was a lot of fun. I know we kind of ranged all over the place, but terrific content. And and keep up the blog because you've got some really, really fun stuff there. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up here. And until next time, Max out. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.